Hi, I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. And you're listening to Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Okay, welcome back everybody. We are so excited for today's episode. I feel like you might be the most, what's the right word? Distinguished. Yes. Yes. I'm really excited and we have like a real... That's not fair to our other guests. I was going to say a real-life conservationist, but by that I mean like in the field conservationist. <laughs> we should say outside of our zoo community. Yes, yes. Outside of our Cincinnati Zoo like community. That. So thank you guys again for joining us in another episode of Cincinnati Zoo Tales. We're incredibly excited to have Karina Newsom with us. Thank you so much for joining us. You're a jack of all trades. We could say you're an ornithologist, you're a biologist, you're a conservation scientist. Um, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. It's really an honor. I've been a fan of the Cincinnati Zoo for a long time, um, and I'm so glad to be back. Good. Yes, we're excited to have you here. And, you know, we introduced you to Fiona. We have to ask, what did you think? Does she live up to the hype? I... Like, I'm still processing. Like, I've been, I never thought I would get to meet Fiona. Like, I've, of course, followed her story, and, like, you know, all of us were on the edge of our seats and, like, couldn't believe yeah. we were seeing, and continue to, I continue to celebrate her health and her wellness and just to see how fun she is to watch. I never thought I would meet her. I am, like, I have goosebumps. I, she's beautiful. <laughs> she's sleepy, which is wonderful. Like, it's just such yes. a special, and seeing her interact with her mother, like, just seeing them both together was such a special experience. And to meet, like, one of the main keepers who, like, is the reason she's here today, you know what I mean? Alive. I'm, like, like fangirling over you. <laughs> like, I could, like, it just has been so special to be able to, like, meet all of you, so well, thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad you got to meet her. It was really fun. The true queen of her. Cincinnati. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, we decided on princess. I'm remember. sorry, yes, princess. She's yeah. princess. <laughs> the queen. So. Yeah. Um, so, ornithologist, you got started, you know, well, I'll let you tell us how you got started. I was, you know watching some clips and I'm very impressed. I think one of the coolest things to me is that you were a zookeeper at one point. So I'd like to hear a little bit how you went from zookeeper to conservation scientist, but if you don't mind, just I guess tell us a little bit, a bit about your background. Yeah. And... yeah. So I, I've always loved wildlife and really been interested in the natural world um, and species of, of animals across the globe. Um, but because I grew up in a city, uh, Philadelphia is where I'm from, I wasn't really familiar with native wildlife. Like, that was very much outside of my perceptual realm, but I had, you know, Crocodile Hunter and National Geographic mm -hmm. and all kinds of nature shows that showed me wildlife around the world. And when I was a senior in college, I was really fortunate to have been connected with a zookeeper at the Philadelphia Zoo, um, which is my home zoo. And she was actually, she's a black woman named Michelle Jamison, and her representation was the most powerful thing for me um, because she was the lead carnivore keeper at the Philadelphia Zoo um, at that time. And she took me behind the scenes, she showed me the ins and outs, and then like revealed to me that there was a lot that people who are interested in wildlife can actually do as a career that I had no idea mm -hmm. about. And so from that literally moment, I applied for an internship at the Philly Zoo and did three years there working in education and animal care. Um, and then I went on to college to major in zoo and wildlife biology, where I continued to kind of do animal care um, work and get experience. And so my first career, the first part of my career was spent um, as a keeper, working in behavioral husbandry um, and ambassador animals. So a lot of the work that I did combined animal care and animal training and education. Um, while I was in college, though, uh, one of the field classes I had to take, so we would take, you know, mammalogy, herpetology, and ornithology. Of all of them, ornithology was the one that I was dreading because I knew that we had to memorize a ton of birds. Oh, yeah, and yeah. I remember the juniors in the class when I was a freshman were like, 
oh, ornithology is such a pain. We have to memorize <laughs> 200 birds visually and, like, identify 70 by sound. And I was like, I didn't oh even gosh. realize there were 200 birds to memorize in North America. In Ohio, yeah. In Ohio, right, yeah, where I was going to school. And so I was literally so stressed out by that. Um, but when I got there and I learned about the Blue Jay on the first day, I was like, holy crap. I didn't know blue jays existed. I heard the name, but I didn't know that was the bird. <laughs> mm -hmm. And had never seen one before. The moment I went outside again, they were everywhere. So anyway, that's when I fell in love with birds. And so when I started as a keeper, most of the animals that I worked with were birds. And, you know, flying birds outside and using uh, birds as part of, like, our education experience at the zoo. Um, and training birds, working with vultures, falcons, parrots, of course. Um, citizens in some cases. Uh, or no, so yeah, that's what these uh, passerines, songbirds. Um, and so working with a really wide diversity, and I knew birds were my thing. Um, and I was like, you know what? One day, I want to also study birds in their natural habitats and kind of like contribute to answering questions about some of the challenges that they're facing. You know, how do we help birds survive in a changing world? And it's so important to have the XC2 and NC2, the in the wild and in uh, human care kind of elements happening at the same time. Um, and so about after four years of working in animal care, I was like, you know what, I feel ready to go collect data and answer questions out in the natural habitats of birds. And so that's kind of where the transition happened. And uh, ever since then, I've kind of been working in conservation, really focused on the management of, of natural ecosystems. That's it's awesome. so intimidating to me. I can't imagine like leaving the zookeeping field and going back to school and like getting my master's. And I think that's what holds me back from... I know I shouldn't say this, but being like a true conservationist. <laughs> you like, are a true conservationist. Like, that's why I say I shouldn't say it. But like, I would love to do that. But also I'm not data driven or like, I'm not, that's not how my brain works or that sort of thing. But I love how you combine it all and you've become like this influencer and you are interesting to people. You're not just what people might think of as like this field biologist that's out in the field and kind of boring or just, you know, yeah. like doing pizzagrams or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's really cool. That you can draw people in and teach them and learn about like birds in the wild, but for a reason, because you want to bring it back to people. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that's really interesting and cool. And so you have mentioned you'd spent a lot of time in the zoo field. Was this all at Philadelphia? Did you branch out to a couple other zoos? So when I was interning, it was actually all at Philadelphia Zoo. Okay. And that had mainly to do with the fact that like, I couldn't afford to live somewhere and not get paid to work. Yes. And sure. Philadelphia Zoo was um, a mile from my house. Um, and so I could walk there. Perfect. And so that's why I interned there, um, which is, you know, that whole system of, of um, kind of unpaid internships, which has been, you know, the status quo and the norm in the zoo field, I think, for as long as internships have existed, um, is it really filters out a large diversity of, of, the pop of the population across the United States and Definitely. is one of the reasons why I think we don't see a lot of diversity in the animal care field. And so I, I'm very passionate about issues relating to, you know, socioeconomic diversity and access for everybody um, to get into the profession. But yeah, that's why I really was at Philadelphia Zoo all three years. No, I was just right. going to say, like, I'm glad you brought that up because you're passionate about something other than animals and mm -hmm. people of color and, and a diverse range of people being in the animal field is something you're passionate about and something that's not as common. And mm -hmm. I was wondering what you think that is. And is it mostly access? Like, depending on where you live, if you don't have access to the zoo or a way to get to, you know, more wildlife because cities don't necessarily have as much. Do you think that's mm -hmm. what the root issue is or where, where does it come from? Yeah. So I think resource access is a huge part. I think there are many strings in it, but um, I think resource access is the main element because it's access to, you know, educational opportunities, right? A lot of 
schools, so some of the schools I went to growing up, like, there's not room in the curriculum to talk about, like, native wildlife oh, or no. ecosystems. So I never learned about any of that. Um, when it comes to, like, access to professionals, right, I don't know any wildlife biologists or conservation scientists, none of that. Like, that was not in my network, and so, and no one I knew knew anybody, right? So there's almost, like, this cultural divide between who has access to those spaces and who doesn't and who knows who, which is linked to resources, I believe. Um, and then there's also resources that are, you know, you know, really financial in nature, and I think you could also argue that money is tied to all those things, but really directly mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, it costs money to go to the zoo. I had actually never been to the Philadelphia Zoo until I was 17 and got an internship. Which and you go for free. Unbelievable that you're, you still became this passionate about wildlife and you had never had that opportunity yeah. until then. Yeah. And so it's like all of those pieces together create an almost like us versus them type of situation where it's like conservation and wildlife science are very much like this you know, black box of what is that? What's going on in there? I'm, you know, we see it on TV, but that's really about as much exposure that me and people from, you know, places like where I'm from have, have gotten. So mm -hmm. I would say those are like some of the main factors. Which is really a shame because, you know, the more inclusion that we can bring to the field and the more diversity we bring to the field, the, the better perspectives we get and the more mm -hmm. we're able to learn. But I mean, you're very right about entering the field. It is, it definitely takes some sort of I guess, luck or privilege, whatever you want to say it is, to be able to say, I'm not going to earn money for six months, yeah. and that's okay. I'm okay to not make an income for six months entering the field, and yeah. everyone is not fortunate enough to have that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So is there anything that you're doing currently to help with that? I mean, I know there is, but we would like yeah. to hear. Yeah, so, I mean, there, there are several ways that I feel like I've been able to kind of in address those resource gaps. Um, and so when I was a keeper, um, both, well, mainly when I was at the Nashville Zoo, so that was the, the place I worked prior to where I work now, um, I, you know, I was like, well, I know the, the reason why I'm here was that I happened to meet a black woman who's a zookeeper, and she took me for free behind the scenes and connected me with resources so that I knew what the next step needed to be if I wanted to do what she was doing. So I was like, let me see if I can create that moment for, for students in the Nashville area. And so um, I was able to start a program that still exists at the Nashville Zoo, thankfully, um, that is, you know, Pathway to Animal Care Careers, where we reach out to local public schools, um, the principals, the teachers, and, you know, we you know, say, do you have any, like, wildlife-leaning students who, like, might be interested in nature and, and animals in any capacity, and they come to the zoo and they spend a day participating in all elements of animal care for the ambassador animal team, um, and then taking a tour of the zoo to different departments to see the various kinds of careers that you can have in the zoo. Um, and then they get the networking, right? So they're encouraged to continue to stay in contact and to re reach out to us with any questions. And um, they still have my phone number, right? So they can still reach out to me. And I, you know, that's a very, very small thing. It takes so much more than just that. Um, but I was, you know, my, my hope was that they'll be able to continue to reach out and get connected with resources along their pathway and that it doesn't stop there. And um, kind of since then, since I've like gone to grad school and then kind of worked more, I would say on the um, kind of community engagement or people side of conservation, um, I've been able to kind of like be very intentional about making the resources that conservation organizations have access to available to communities that are not currently in their constituency, essentially. They're not being engaged. And so um, for the past year and a half, I've worked at, or almost two years, at George Audubon as the community engagement manager. And so a lot of what I've been doing has been how do we connect communities, again, that we don't see represented with like hands-on conservation data collection that's happening in the field, citizen and community science. Do you How have we... an example of that? Like yeah. what? That's amazing that you can figure that yeah. out and make it happen. Yeah. So there, 
one of the, the, the techniques that we, I actually used was a, a friend of mine da named Deja Perkins did her master's research looking at the relationship between income and where people were using this platform called eBird, which is a really, really popular um, citizen science platform among bird nerds. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people use it, and the field of conservation you know, for birds in particular really relies on that data, everyday people just sharing what they see. And we found that in places, or she found, excuse me, that in places that were redlined or like disenfranchised economically for a long time, um, in, like it was lawful, lawful disenfranchisement, um, they, those areas don't have eBird data. And not because there aren't birds, it's just there's no data there. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, I wonder if that's true in Atlanta, where I currently live. And so I, I reached out to the National Audubon Society and I was like, hey, would you guys mind like running some numbers, running a, reg a regression to like figure out, is there a relationship here? And sure enough, same thing in Atlanta. In the places that are low income, there is very little eBird data. We don't know about the bird diversity that's there. We don't know the abundance, right? But in places that are high income, tons of data. And it happens to, to be in my city that in those low income areas, there's actually incredible habitat. Hundreds of acres of old growth forest, incredible habitat diversity. And it's like, I've seen the birds. I know there yeah. are birds here. <laughs> but we are actually not only disenfranchising people but not being equitable in our engagement. We're disenfranchising conservation because now we have holes in our data spatially. Mm -hmm. Like we, There are pockets of places we know nothing about that hurt what we're trying to do in like the very science-y realm of it. You know? And so um, I use that mapping to prioritize where I'm doing my outreach, where I'm doing wow. my educational engagement, and um, have been grateful to be able to like you know coordinate citizen science data collection and planting of, you know, wildlife gardens and, and habitat restoration and helping to, to, to plan and coordinate that for those areas where we don't see a lot of data about birds. So that's, I think, the most recent and current project that um, I'm working on right now. That's so, incredible. Yeah, it's so interesting <laughs> to me how much needs to go into everything. Like, you need yeah. so much community involvement for conservation yes. and you need to find out where you need the community involvement to get to that place. And yeah. I think it's incredible that people like you are doing that and know that it needs to be done and are looking into that. Like, it's it's amazing. Yeah, I don't and think inspiring I people to participate in citizen science. I think a lot of listeners would be surprised. You know, when you picture these research projects, you think that they're just scientists and biologists out there collecting the data. Mm -hmm. A lot of these projects really rely on citizens with their eBird app mm -hmm. or whatever they're working on collecting data themselves. And like you said, when there are holes in the data, we can't create a, an accurate conservation picture. Yep. So. It's a huge issue, yeah. When you went to get your master's, did you have an idea of where you were going from that point? That's a great question. So originally I went back to school because I thought I wanted to be like a tenure track professor and have oh. a lab and, you know, then get my PhD. Um, and then like once I got into, you know, back into school, I, you know, I realized I don't want to work in academia. Like I love research and I love data collection and I love lifting patterns from the natural world and figuring out what's going on, but I don't want to work in the academic setting. Um, and so I knew, though, regardless of what I did, that I wanted to contribute to helping birds survive in a changing world, particularly as it relates to climate change. Um, but I also wanted to be able to center equitable outcomes for human communities that, have, that are also suffering the most from the same environmental threats that wildlife are facing. Um, because, you know, our problem solving could easily and has in the past hurt Vulnerable, vulnerable communities in the United States around the world. And so if we're not intentional about how we problem solve, we can continue that harm. And we can't afford to do that um, because ultimately it also uh, Im impacts the actual conservation work itself mm -hmm. too. So That's extremely important work, but I do have a question about it. So when you went from Nashville Zoo to do your graduate research, did you find it difficult to make that leap from like 
animal care to I guess the more research side of it for me personally that's what always holds me back Same is here. like I value my connections with the animals and my relationships with them so much that mm-hmm. I just I don't know if I could give that up how was, what was that experience yeah, like you for miss you being the hands-on with the animals yeah. yeah and so it's interesting because the work that I was doing was very observational and like I was spying on animals so I had <laughs> video cameras on nests I was studying a bird called a seaside sparrow um, I had camera traps throughout their their ecosystems. They live in salt marshes, um, coastal salt marshes. This is in southern Georgia? In southern Georgia, okay. yeah. And so I, while it wasn't a lot of hands-on, like there were some hands-on elements, like I was banding birds, and so I, you know, there was that really exciting piece. So I, I did, I was able to kind of like maintain that element of like really up-close interaction and just being able to witness the incredible like complexity of, of animal, you know, brains and bodies. And it's just like, wow, I love that, you know. Um, but I was also being able to like capture drama that I wouldn't have been able to see <laughs> with, if I was there in person. Like, so I would have my cameras out there and the, the moment the card, the memory card was full, I'm like, yes, I get to go see what, you know, what's happening now. Yeah. And so, I mean, it honestly wasn't, I was, I, I was very scared. I'll tell you when I left animal care and I went into academia and research, I was like terrified. Number one, because like I had been out of doing math for a long time and math is a a significant part of it once you have your data and you're now processing it um but thankfully like I had great teachers so I took biometry or you know biostatistics so like I was able to kind of like rework my my math side of my brain um and kind of get those skills back up and once you like once you have like your specific project and a specific question you're answering there's a very specific kind of math that applies to what you're doing and you kind of get you get used to doing it because you do it over and over again. You really get in the mix. So it ended up being a beautiful and incredible experience. Um, so it was difficult approaching it and anticipating it. But once I was in it, I was like, oh, this is good. Do you remember, like, not to put you on the spot, but one of those drama moments you caught that might be interesting oh to share? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Like, And I am also curious how you chose the Seaside Sparrow. That's and my question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's my- so I'll start with the second question. So I had actually never even heard of a Seaside Sparrow before I went to grad school. I just knew that I had that general question. How do we help birds that are vulnerable to climate change survive in this, their changing environments? And so I had bird nerds have a really cool resource where you can, there's like a list of every bird ornithological professor that has a graduate lab in the country. And so you can like read blurbs about the research. And I found someone who studied things I was interested in. It was a system that I was not familiar with. I had never been to a salt marsh. I had never seen a seaside sparrow. I had never even heard of a seaside sparrow. But their plight was one that I cared a lot about. Like, they Mm -hmm. were, you know, they're, you know, right on the edge of the ocean. Sea level rise is an immediate threat. You know, exacerbated storms, all of that. Um, And so I'm like, yes, like, that's a bird that falls in the category of, you know, the things that I really care about. And so it was a huge learning curve. I, I had to learn all about the natural history of the bird, which is not, you know so far removed from things I already knew. They're passerine. So some things I was able to kind of deduce, but Mm. yeah, like, um, so because that ecosystem was so new to me, like the biotic interactions, the interactions between species was just so novel. Like, I felt like I was in the, you know, the tropics somewhere. Anyway, so one... one, I've never been to, like, a marsh area, I guess, now that I'm Yeah, are you, like, do you have, like, waders wading into the water? Like, yeah, yeah. And it's, like, and I keep forgetting, we're in Cincinnati, we're in Ohio, so this is so far from, like, the Atlantic coast. Yeah. Um... So the salt marsh is like this expansive grassland. It's, you know, you look out and it just looks like a bed of grass for it, as far as the eye can see. But when you walk out there, it's like very loose mud. And so you're, you know, you're sinking usually up to your knee with oh most steps. It's a lot of work. Um, yeah. Or you're <laughs> mid-calf to knee, and then sometimes you like sink into your, you know, waist or something. Um, 
and it's also a tidal environment. So the water, and, and in Georgia, the tidal amplitude is huge and like, you know, eight feet difference between wow. low tide and high tide sometimes. Wow. So very huge. Um, and so the, the mud is uh, incredibly muddy. <laughs> um, it just does mud stuff. Um, and so walking around is, yeah, I, I always describe it as like, it feels like in your hip flexors, like you've been, you're walking upstairs the whole time. Okay. And so it's, just, yeah. It's very physically demanding. It makes for um, a long day. Yeah. It does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I got strong. Shoot. You don't want to fight me after a season in the marsh. Um, but, yeah. And so when I was able to put cameras, like, especially cameras on nests, um, there were two main interactions that really stand out to me. Number one, there's another bird in the, in the salt marsh called the uh, marsh wren. And so they're very similar in behavior to, like, Carolina wrens or house wrens, like you might have probably more like house wrens that you have here in Cincinnati. Um, they're very territorial in the breeding season. They will do anything to make sure that you no longer exist in their, <laughs> in their uh, territory. And so in the salt marsh, they, and they're about half the size of a seaside sparrow. When a seaside sparrow, it, so I had several instances of this, a seaside sparrow mother would be incubating her eggs, then she would fly off to like maybe get a snack or a drink or something, right? And immediately, as though the, the marsh wren was watching the nest, Marsh wren shows up and like pokes holes in all the eggs. Oh no! Yeah, yeah. So as to and you're watching this happen, yes. which would be so hard. Yes, and so it's like I'm obviously sad for the seaside sparrow because they're like kind of the most at risk in the scenario. Um, but I'm like, what? Right. So I watched the marsh wren poke holes in the egg, then like drink a little yolk. Right. So now you're a predator too, a little bit. Yeah. You oh, know. Gosh. And then toss the egg out of the nest. <gasps> And it explained a lot because I had found a lot of nests where, you know, there were eggs there the day before and then the next day they're just not there. Like, mm -hmm. there's no egg frag. It's not like a broken egg, like a mammal chewed on it and it, it's just gone. And I'm like, what? what's happening? Little marsh it's friends. the marsh friends. You know? And is it because they feel threatened by the sparrows or like a no. resource thing? Yeah, or... I, it's more resources. Like I, the sparrows are the ones that are <laughs> like the, the threatened one between the two because marsh wrens do not hold back. They are very, I, you know, they can be aggressive in the breeding season. Um, and so because they want to like really monopolize, essentially, you know, the territorial, territoriality of it being like, if there's nothing else to compete with for the resources and the space, excellent. Yeah. And that's what, you know, the marsh wren kind of wants out there. Um, and so, yeah, like, that was I couldn't I couldn't believe it. I'm like, wow. And are the seaside sparrows tree nesters? Where are they building their nests? So seaside sparrows and marsh wrens um, build their nest in the grass of the marsh. So in okay. the salt marsh, I keep yeah I keep forgetting that you all do not have salt marshes. So this, this I'm still ecosystem picturing is, some trees. Well, and no this is trees. where climate change becomes an issue. Correct? Yeah, yeah, Sorry, yeah. I'm yeah. Interrupting, so, but no, no, no. Yeah, and so the way that marshes are set up, so you have like grassland that has no trees, all grass, and where we are, it's mostly spartina cordgrass. Um, smooth cord grass, and then behind the marsh, you have like maritime forests. So, mm -hmm. trees that are kind of right, you know, you have trees, marsh, ocean okay. is kind of the pattern. Um, seaside sparrows and marsh wrens, they build their nest in the grass, so suspended off of the ground, usually for the sparrows, maybe like 30, 40 centimeters or something. Um, and it's made of dead marsh grass, so mm -hmm. um, which is one of the reasons why it's challenging to find them because you're looking for grass inside grass. Yeah. But yeah, and so, and the, the second dra dra drama piece that I found that I actually published last year, it was very cool, was that during a high tide event, which happens again twice a day, but a really high, high tide, one of the nests that I was recording got flooded and there was a chick that had hatched that day and two eggs that had not yet hatched. And the water filled the nest and the chick was like floating on top. 
um, and was actually surviving. It probably, and honestly, wouldn't probably have survived. Like, it probably wouldn't have been able to maintain its body temperature, but um, it was alive. And then suddenly, a little fish swims into the nest, and it sits there. And I'm like, that's interesting. I just, you know, I, I never paid attention much to fish in the marsh. And then it start, it pulls a chick underwater and is, like, thrashing it around in its mouth, like, eating eating it. No way. Yeah. And kills oh a chick. Yeah. Gosh, I would have I was such like, a hard time doing this. I though. cried, but I literally cried, <sighs> but like my jaw was on my knee. Yeah. I was like, I, what did I just witness? Yes. Like, <laughs> I sent know it to what everyone. Kind of it, was? it was a mummy chog, which is has a, a scary name. <laughs> yeah. They're like, I describe them as like the raccoons of the fish world. Like they can survive in anything. Like they undergo changes in salinity and pH and oxygen wow. throughout the day. And they're fine. Like, they'll survive in, like, a little puddle while the tide is out. And then when the tide comes back in, they go swimming around. They're very... They've even been sent to space. Like, they sent mummy chogs to outer space. And they were, like, to see if they would, you know, adapt at all in a weightless environment. And, of course, they did. Right? They were wow. upside down for a little bit. And they were, like, oh, okay. Wow. They, they oh righted themselves. Gosh. And they sent eggs, too. And the eggs hatched completely able to now you know to swim around in that environment very hardy fish now we need to look them up yeah for sure (laughs) (laughs) wow so yeah you have to worry about the nest flooding yes and you have to worry about predators yes and it's a more recent issue because of climate change causing more flooding correct that's right and the interesting thing about seaside sparrows is that they have a behavioral adaptation to responding to nest flooding that makes sense it's you know if their nest floods, they'll re-nest right away, as many birds tend to do, especially songbirds, and then they'll build it higher the next time, though, usually about seven centimeters on average higher, so that they don't get flooded again, which, you know, in theory makes sense. But um, predators, especially, I believe, mammalian predators, but predators are more likely to find the nest if they're higher in the grass. Mm-hmm. And so as you respond to one threat, you lessen the likelihood of one threat, you're increasing yeah. the likelihood of another threat. And so is it because the nest isn't hidden as well when it's I believe I, okay. I, I would I would imagine so. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we've we've studied that particularly enough to know exactly what it is, mm-hmm. but I, I I think that that may, might be part of it. Um, and yeah, and so they're walking a very fine line that's already thin in order to yeah. have a successful clutch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as sea level rise is intensifying, Flooding is more frequent, so in, in theory, we're we're imagining that uh, we anticipate rather that um, as it intensifies, the flooding increases in frequency. That they're going to be more exposed to this very thin line that they have to walk. Um, and so, yeah. So my research focused on nest predation, so that we could, you know, kind of have an understanding of what is the spatial pattern to where nests are most vulnerable to predation, and can, you know, that's a that's a, a threat that we can kind of more easily respond to. It's not it's hard to do something about sea level rise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as like a wildlife management division in a, a state, yeah. but you know, predator management is something that is in the wheelhouse of what we can do. And so, if we can lessen the threat of predation, it essentially provides more room, um, <laughs> adaptive uh, adaptation wise, for the bird to to engage its natural response to the nest flooding threat, um, to elevate their nest without having to increase that threat of, of predation, hopefully. Does, what are all of the predators? Does that walk a fine line too, where, you know, if you take away predators, it can cause an like ecosystem to have many issues. Like what predators did you find and how do you manage them? Yeah. So, um, I will definitely say that my expertise is not in predator management, but most of this, the predators that I was seeing were mammalian predators. And that's actually what my study was focused on. And so, um, the, the main predators that I saw were raccoons, of course, they Mm. can be anywhere and everywhere. Um, and then some like marsh and wetland adapted predators like mink, American mink and, um, rice rats. There's actually a a rat species. Yeah. 
that is native to like wetland environments. Um, yeah, and so predator management can look like a lot. Usually, I, what I would imagine, and if any wildlife managers, managers are listening, you know, <laughs> predator management can be a sticky subject, but yeah. um, there are a lot of ways to do it. So um, in, for example, beach nesting birds, right, sometimes, you know, they have to go all out and kind of eliminate certain predators that have become overabundant, like raccoons, right? Mm. Um, but sometimes you can just, like, protect a nest, right? So if you are, you know, there's ways to kind of protect individual nests that you find from predation. Um, you can limit access to the location where birds are breeding in general. And so depending on what is most appropriate for, like, a wetland environment, you can take different strategies. And one of the issues, though, is that in the, on the coast, a lot of the wetlands have causeways that go through them that essentially provide increased access for predators to marshes. And so yeah. my research essentially found that predator activity is really concentrated along those causeways. And so what I would imagine is that like, if we can limit access at that really, you know, common entry point, and a lot of research has been done to show that, yeah, like roads into wetlands are, you know, can be detrimental yeah. <laughs> um, because predators have a lot more access, especially if it's connected to like a city. Where Which feels obvious, but you're not thinking of all that goes into Everything. it, you yeah. know, it's not yeah. just taking away habitat. It's I would I've never even that's never crossed my mind yeah. that it gives access to. Because remember, I said yeah. walking in the marsh is tough. Like it's mud, <laughs> it's water. Yeah. But if you have a nice high dry, you know, dry ground to walk on, it's sure. like easy to. It's yeah. yeah, it's just a it funnels them in. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. So are you finished with that project now? Yeah, so I'm finished collecting data, and I'm now in the process of publishing the data, which okay. um, publishing the research, which is its own kind of task, and mm -hmm. um, it's going through the scientific review process. So I just we just got our manuscript back and submitted the um, did all the edits and the comments that they asked, addressed the comments they asked us to, and so now we're waiting to hear back from them. But um, once that's published, that particular project will be fully wrapped up. Okay, and so what do you do in the meantime? And you know, you came to the Cincinnati Zoo to speak. Are you doing lots of lectures or what else are you up to? Yeah, so my full-time job is as the community engagement manager at Georgia Audubon. Um, that's where I've been for almost two years, but I recently accepted a position at the National Wildlife Federation as the uh, associate conservation scientist in their um, national advocacy office in D.C. So that's wow. where I'll be relocating to. Um, and Congrats. So, thank Congrats. you. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. awesome. And so in that role, a lot of the work that I'll be doing will focus on kind of working with wildlife managers in different parts of the country around uh, climate adaptation kind of uh, frameworks for, for wildlife management. Because what we're having to really navigate now is that a lot of what we've done has kind of been from the preservation perspective, like, or resilience perspective, where it's like, how do we, in the face of change or in the face of threats, pressures, stressors, how do we allow an ecosystem to kind of remain what it is or go back to what it was, right? Where we really, or, or, or species, you know, populations. Mm -hmm. But what we have to think about is like, it's changing. And so how do we allow our biodiversity to continue to exist as the world is changing, as opposed to trying to keep things exactly the same. And so figuring out how we can equip, yeah, um, the places where we're living, the places where we're working, the wildlife that we have to be able to continue to survive in a changing world. And so that's what that will focus on and centering um, people outcomes and how can we do these things in a way that increases the um, adaptive capacity of, of people communities that are also in these very vulnerable places like coasts. So um, I'm really excited about that work because, again, the intersection of conservation and, and environmental justice is my entire, you know, what my entire world and what I care the most about. So. That's incredible. You mentioned earlier you were introduced to so many different opportunities with animal as jobs and, mm -hmm. and whatnot. And there are so many that I still don't know about. Yes. Are Same. Really, yes. <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing, but it's yeah. so important. And I'm glad there are people like you that are willing to do to do that and have the capacity to do that. Mm -hmm. So Thank that's, you. that's 
incredible. Yeah, definitely. And you had mentioned earlier how you said, talking about your outreach program that you started at Nashville Zoo, and you said, you know, it's just a small piece, but every small piece adds up, and you wouldn't be where you are today without your experience at Philadelphia Zoo. Hopefully you're able, you, through your program at Nashville Zoo, you're able to give kids a similar experience and, you know, create That's more conservationists. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I hope so, and I would, love a, I would love a world in which it doesn't take, like, lucky stars aligning for uh, a kid who loves wildlife to end up in the career that they are really well-equipped for and have the brilliant for sure. mind for, and that there's just a system that, like, is usable by everybody and doesn't exclude mm -hmm. anybody or leave holes for people to fall through if they don't have certain resources. So um, I'm excited to see that. And I would have to say, Cincinnati Zoo is leading the charge in ways I had no idea before I visited this time um, around creating that access and addressing gaps in the pathway. So I applaud you all. And I'm learning so much during my time here. So Yes, Cincinnati <laughs> Zoo has really done a lot over the years, especially with like our Zoo Academy program, and then we've also got a lot of inclusiveness and community outreach pro outreach programs, which offer people the chance to visit the zoo that might not normally have the opportunity to come visit and be inspired by the animals, and hopefully be inspired enough to take on a field, in the field of wildlife, but even if not, take on the field just to make a change in their own lifestyle that can help, mm -hmm. but yeah. Yeah, I watched a clip where you were talking about, and I'll just paraphrase, but like biodiversity in the natural world is so important and it makes sense that we need diversity within the conservation world with mm -hmm. people, right? And I just thought that was like a really good point because we have to have so many different, like I mentioned just a second ago, you have to have so many different minds and the way people think and the, what you're interested in doing and how you're helping. And mm -hmm. I think that's, re that's really impressive. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> like our whole effort is diversity, right? Everything, our yes. work is about how do we keep diversity? So it's, we got to foster it. And our practitioners, yeah. Yeah, and it's so much bigger than when you think diversity within animals or genetics or something mm -hmm. like that. It's, it's everywhere. It's yeah. all correlated, yeah. 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 I do want to start about talk about one, um, I guess, project that you helped start, Black Birders Week. Yeah. So obviously you, it is very important to you as someone who is underrepresented in the scientific community to spread the good word and continue your outreach. Mm -hmm. Will you talk about how... You, where you got the motivation to start Black Birders Week, what exactly it is. Just talk a little bit about it. Yeah, so, so Black Birders Week was really a, this massive team effort that happened unexpectedly somewhat. Um, so essentially, I'll start by saying that when I got into birds, again, fell in love in undergrad during my ornithology class, all the way through zookeeping, grad school, I had never even seen or another black person who liked birds, like bird watched, right? And I remember see, finding someone on Twitter who's a black guy and a birder, his name is Jeffrey, and I was like, I couldn't believe it. He's just one person. I don't even know him. He's in New York somewhere. <laughs> I was like, excuse me. Uh, like, just so I am clear, you're a black and you're a bird watcher? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, what? And then he had a brother who was also... And then, like, all of a sudden through social media, it was like, holy crap, there are actually multiple, not just multiple, but, like, a lot of us here. And simply because we, in our physical environments and context we didn't see anyone else it's very it was easy for me to like think that I was really the only one and so social media was very powerful for that and so a community was essentially fostered and we eventually all ended up in the same group chat on like group me and there was probably a hundred people in wow. this chat that were just bird enthusiasts or nature enthusiasts and so that chat was just there for us to kick it and so you know support each other whatever um and then one day in, in 2020, when, um, as some people might have been aware of, like, you know, George Floyd had been murdered by the police. And in that, I think that same day, um, Christian Cooper, who is a, a, a birder and a, a black man, and he's on the board of New York City Audubon and, a, you know, a, a real friend in the birding community, um, 
like he recorded his interaction with a white woman who had called the police on him after he asked her to lease her dog in this you know wildlife area mm-hmm. in Central Park. Um, and like she lied and said that he was threatening her life and tried to weaponize the police against him. And he happened to catch that on camera. And we saw that and we were like, oh my gosh, like Christian. And it's not that he has to be a nice person or he has to be anything to not deserve having the police called on him, you know, um, weaponized against him. But we would often hear in the, you know, kind of in people's responses to police brutality or or brutality from from white folks against black people, like, oh, it's because this person was this or, oh, it's because that. And I'm like, you have like all of y'all have no excuse about Christian. He's the best person in the world. Um, And so it was like. You know, so it hit the group chat, and we're all like, "Oh my gosh! Like this is terrible! Like this breaks our hearts!" And um, and then so Anna, who was um, one of the women in the group chat, she was like, "We have to do something. We have to organize around this somehow." And um, and then my friend Taiki was like, "We need to make a week of of or you know a week of something celebration, awareness, whatever." And then people just started throwing <laughs> ideas in, and we were just sharing like, "Oh, what if we have you know a different theme every day?" And what if we you know like we just and within like two days of just like meeting with each other and like organizing, we came up with an entire Black Birders Week um, that ended up being a lot more, in my opinion, like widespread and engaged with than I could have ever imagined. And not only are there a hundred Black Birders, right, that were in that group chat, there are just thousands and thousands around the world. And it was mind-blowing, maybe even millions, shoot, but it was just like (laughs) mind-blowing to like have that experience and just like you know, the the point of it was to build awareness and say, hey, like, Chris's experience was not an isolated incident, as oftentimes these things are, are categorized as. We have all had experiences like this um, in different ways. Um, and wanting to kind of elevate our stories, but also kind of celebrate Black people in nature, because I feel like we just hadn't seen that. We hadn't, I hadn't seen that until I had these people. Yeah. I was like, you know? Um, and so it ended up expanding our awareness of each other, our community, and it was just a beautiful thing. And Blackbirders Week, I'm not, I haven't co-organized the last one, um, but Blackbirders Week is continuing every year um, around Memorial. It's coming in May, right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. End of May. Um, and so I'll be looking out for it, and I'll be participating when it happens. But what yeah. are the things people can participate in? Yeah. So I every every year it's different. Okay. Um, it, uh, last year was different from the first year, but every week they'll kind of they'll they'll release a. Um, a schedule with a theme for every day. And so I encourage people to kind of, you know, when you see that schedule, like use the hashtags, get on Instagram, get on Twitter. Um, but if you are a black person and you live and you like birds, or if you're thinking about liking birds, um, <laughs> I would encourage you to, you know, create an event during that week that kind of really highlights um, the representation that actually does exist that we're just not shown very often um, and create a safe space for, for, for black folks to enjoy the outdoors and um, really elevate the the joy that is bird watching, right? Um, and introduce somebody to the I, love of birds. Yes. I love that you guys took some horrific or a few or however, probably way more than any of us know about mm-hmm. incidents and made it into something positive and something that brought everyone together and now more yeah. awareness in so many ways for the good and you're just like, we're going to make this happen. And then you did. And that's that's really inspiring. And yeah. and I do, I wanted to mention, I think it's funny if you're like, you think you might like birds. I, I know like as people get older, you realize you need a lot more relaxing in your life. Yes. And like just going <laughs> yes. out and listening for birds mm-hmm. or then seeing them yes. and recognizing them. And, you know, it's very relaxing. I do it think is. it's something that is worth getting into if you have a little bit yes. of stress in your life, which I feel like a lot of people do yeah, at this sure. time. And, you know, yeah, for sure. In history, no, it's a really but... cool program that you guys were able to organize. And like, 
it's a very good example for me of like social media at its best. Like we see so much toxicity, <laughs> toxicity and mm-hmm. th- we see the worst side of social media a lot, but yeah. there is a good side of it too that can really unite people and bring people together. And yeah. I want to stress to other listeners, like, you know, as Black Birders Week, me as an average white guy from Kentucky, I can still show my support and you can still use your hashtags mm-hmm. and spread the information and yep. spread the good news and the word. So yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Yes. Yeah. And um, can we mention your Instagram? So yeah. you're, you know, you've, you've got some followers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I think it's, it's so cool. But tell us your Instagram and like how it got started. And are you doing other things, other social platforms that people can follow along with? Um, yeah, so my Instagram <clears throat> is hood naturalist and it's hood two underscores, underscore, underscore naturalist, um, kind of reflecting the fact that I am from a really urban environment, you know, low income background, and you can still be a naturalist even there. I and, love I, that. and I am. Um, and on Twitter, you can find me at hood underscore naturalist one underscore. Um, and yeah, like I use those platforms. I'm not like a social media guru. Like I don't have like, you know, like little mini shows that I've created. It's just me sharing my adventures in the outdoors. Um, and you kind of coming with me to experience the, the joy that it brings me. Um, and then also like uplifting activism and, and stories about how you can plug in to supporting the efforts for environmental advocacy, advocacy for communities who are experiencing environmental harm wherever you are. And so I, I think that's the most important use of social media is uplifting voices mm-hmm. and sharing opportunities to um, use our resources, whatever they might be, whether it's money, whether it's platform, our voice, emailing, calling, whatever it might be, to to support these efforts. And I think, again, like social media, as, as much of a... Um, toxic places it can be has been one of the most powerful tools for bypassing systems that are very entrenched that really um, discriminate against people and really be able to organize outside of them and, and mobilize large groups of people. So yeah, if you want to follow along for that, I would be happy to have you. <laughs> I, I really think you're just so inspiring not on, on more than one level. You know, I just, it's, it's really cool. And I yeah. think if people follow along, they'll be very inspired. So, I mean, you're fighting for social justice and conservation and everything. Yeah. I think it's really They cool. go together very well. They really do. So, Which you thank you. I, you know, hadn't really thought about before. So, that's yeah. awesome. And I'm, I'm also, like, very fascinated and inspired by your journey as, like, someone who grew up in such an urban environment to be able to take on the field of wildlife. Like, for me... You know, my family owns a farm growing up, so I was Mm. always around animals and always around wildlife, and it was really easy for me to get involved and passionate about the field, but someone who grew up with your background is so different, and I'm just fascinated that you were able to find the path that you found, I guess. Yeah, and I'll tell you... Which it shouldn't be that hard to find the path. It shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be. Right. But I'll tell you, the city is still with me, right? So even when I was in the field, like in the marsh, those grasshoppers had me screaming (laughs) and running. I, like, could not... I almost, I almost like lost consciousness because the grasshopper got in my boot and I stepped on it with my foot, y'all. Like those moments like that where I'm like, I'm no, I'm going back to the concrete jungle. <laughs> so there are still parts of urban life that are not going to leave me. But yes, no, I agree. I'm, I too am fascinated that I've been able to. That's so funny. Stick with it. So. That's so I'm the opposite. After one day in downtown Cincinnati, I'm like, I need to go see some grasshoppers. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta get out of here. I gotta get out of here. <laughs> oh, shoot. So I just have a random question. What is your favorite animal? Ooh, my favorite animal is the giant river otter. That was okay. actually where I got my first introduction mm-hmm. to animal behavior um, when I was an intern. I wasn't even supposed to be doing this, but Michelle Jamison, <laughs> the zookeeper who got me into it, she let me like participate in kind of ethogram studies and like monitoring social interactions and you know giant river otters if you've ever had a chance to see them are like 
have incredibly complex social structures in their family groups and very entertaining to watch, like very high energy and they sleep hard too. But um, <laughs> like they, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, I love cataloging animal behavior and finding patterns in it and like understanding how they interact with each other. And that's when I knew I love behavior. And then I found out later on, I love birds. Um, and I'm grateful to have been able to kind of put the two together somewhat um, in my research. Um, but Jack River Otter is my favorite animal, but blue jays are my favorite bird. So They're I have so to shout impressive. them out. They're so impressive. So that inspired you. Yes, yes. I love yes. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Blue jays are bigger than you think. I feel yes. like, I mean, I see them all the time, but... Then you get up close and they're way bigger and, and so bright. You don't really yeah. see that blue color in nature very often. It's so striking. So many different it. shades yeah. of the blue. But we yeah. have to give out a shout out also to vultures, right? Like we uh, were kind of, we all love vultures yes, in this yes. room. And I, yes. I was introducing her to Bubba and Nino and El Gran Ishtar. They're special, for sure. Uh, Bubba and Nino were building their nest and their little pitiful stick nest. But yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so cool. River otters, or sorry. Giant, Giant river yes, otters. river otters are amazing. Otters in general is what I meant to say are just so fascinating. They're so like fun and smart and active and yeah, yeah and so God. playful. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, because of time, I guess we'll go ahead and embarrass myself with our our trivia. And I quiz. do have trivia oh, for gosh, you guys. Right. Yeah, oh. if y'all are ready, obviously we've got a resident ornithologist on site, so we've got to have a bird related quiz. The pressure. So, oh. No pressure. <laughs> Oh, no, but some of these questions me. are tough. <laughs> Just wait till we get to the last one. All right. Oh, lots of guessing. Question involved. number one: Which species of bird has the largest wingspan? Oh, is it Lace and Albatross? Albatross. I, I actually did know that. One. Albatross. Yes. Any idea of how big the wingspan is? Is it like seven, eight, and somewhere between seven and nine feet? Right. I think is it's twelve. Twelve. Oh 12 no, twelve feet. Yeah, twelve. 12, you guys are almost exactly on the dot. So the largest specimen was found in 1965, 11 feet, 11 inches. Oh, wow. Essentially 12 wow. feet. Yeah, like, okay, thanks for catching yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I forgot. The reason yeah. I sort of knew that is because I know they're more than the vultures, and I was asked once, you know, the or we talk about the wingspan of our vultures, which are eight or nine, so I knew mm -hmm. it had to be more than that. So that's okay. how I got that. Yeah, massive birds. I have never seen an albatross in person, but that's on my bucket list for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Talked about the largest wingspan. Which species of bird builds the biggest nest? <gasps> I know this one. And if I you think, have a guess, wait. if you have a guess, how much does the nest weigh? So biggest, biggest, like the nest that they build for their clutch is this big yes. versus like, okay. Yes. Is it the, I want to say the hammer not it's not the hammer Oh, wait, are we it? doing relational or just biggest? Is that what you're asking? Like well, relation to size? Or? Well, no, because I was thinking of, like, there was a really big, like, eagle's nest recently, but they, like, built it over years, and, like, they just laid it on top, yes. and it ended up being a huge behind. Like, yeah, so that's the idea, is just the largest nest that a bird has built. I would have guessed, I think, stellar sea eagle. Huh. Okay. I don't know. Are hammer cups big? Well, they're not big, but they build these big mud... Is it oh. hammer cops? Oh. They build these huge mud, mud like... Nest. I'm not familiar. Houses. I've heard of them, but not... Okay. I believe they're hammer cops. But anyway, I don't, yeah, what is it? What is it? It's bald eagle. No it's Bald it? eagle, yeah. So in St. Petersburg, Florida, yes! this nest That's has been one! built over years. Yes! Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
so these eagles had returned to this same nest site and they had continued adding on to it wow. for year after year. Is it 200 pounds or something? It's way more. They oh. estimate, they don't want to take it down, but they estimate it's around 4,400 oh, pounds. How many square feet? It's it's 9 feet 6 inches wide and 20 feet deep. Oh my god! Because they just keep building and adding to it. 20 feet oh deep. My do you know how yeah. long they've been a pair? Like how much longer do you think they'll continue building? I do not know. Building? I'm wow. not sure. Oh. I'll have to look it up. I just heard about that story uh, actually <laughs> last week. So that was very timely. Like how tall is an average like one story house? Right. Probably 20 feet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like eight feet, six feet, eight feet to the ceiling. Yeah. yeah. Wow. wow. Impressive. It's wild. Wild. All right. On to another wild bird. <laughs> Puck the parakeet. Puck the parakeet <laughs> holds the record for the largest vocabulary of any bird. How many words does Puck know? <laughs> I, I like this as an equal guess. Like, you may not Good necessarily luck. know this. Okay. Good luck. How many words? So yeah. when you say vocabulary, you're like human, like, mimicked yeah. words. So, so this is verified by the Guinness Book of World Records. They actually had different volunteers who were differentiating every single word that he could pronounce. Okay. So he knows this many words. I guess 57. 57. I'll say, oh, shoot, 100? You guys are both way low. I didn't really oh, no. keep... He knows 1,728 words. I was going to say, because, like, <laughs> mockingbirds can, like, have a thousand or more, like, sounds. Repetition. Like, or, like mimic, yeah. mimic sounds that they can have in there. So I was like, I don't know about a parakeet, though. What are they? Puck. Puck's wow, smarter Puck. than I am. Yeah, so Puck. I know that. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I probably, oh, my gosh. That's my first thought, too, is, like, Puck, Puck definitely is more intelligent than I am. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> is wow. he still alive? <gasps> I do not know. He okay. set the record in 1995. Okay. I know parakeets are pretty long-lived birds. What year is this? So. 2022. Okay. <clears throat> He'd be in his 30s. Yeah. So. Okay. Mm. All right. We're, we've talked about a lot of hard-hitting topics today. We're now onto a philosophical debate. Oh. This might be the hotly, most hotly debated issue among bird people in, all, in history. Wow. According to National Geographic... Which came first, the chicken oh or the God. egg? Oh, <laughs> Lord. National Geographic has That's an, an answer? answer for it. Which well, came first, the chicken or the egg? I feel like I actually might have read this, but do you want to go first? or do you, No, do you I don't have... I, no, go. <laughs> so, please, go Jen first. Jen is disgusted with this question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just like, I don't know how to answer. I don't remember what they said, but if I had to guess, you know, when you think about when mutation happens, right, and something becomes different, you know, it's genetic, and so it would appear first in maybe the, you know, in development and embryo is the first part of that versus somehow it's starting with an adult, an adult chicken, right? Or like an adult individual. So like maybe egg? Right. Oh, wait, wait, wait. But, but if, you're talking, if the genes are, the, the gametes are in the adult before they're in the, you know, like the genes are in the adult and then they're in the egg, you know, but then like oh. there could be mutations in the egg. So like it could be in the chicken or it could be in the egg. There's a possibility for the you know, evolution to happen. <laughs> you, I'm loving watching your wheels turn. <laughs> <laughs> She's got the most scientific perspective oh. on this question I've ever seen. That's, <sighs> one can't exist without the other? Is that a philosophical answer? So, so that might be the philosophical answer. That's not National Geographic's answer. <laughs> National Geographic says, unequivocally, it's the egg. Okay. Well, yeah, you can't have an adult were, yeah. an egg. So reptiles were laying egg eggs thousands of years before chickens appeared. Mm -hmm. And at some point, 
the first chicken that appeared had to have come from an egg. Mm -hmm. So you were on the right track. Okay. Yeah. So the egg that laid what became a chicken was not necessarily a from. chicken. It was a very close relative of a chicken. Yeah. Well. Interesting. Well, yes. We now know. Well. The egg came first. <laughs> <laughs> Oh All right, gosh. here's your final question today. <laughs> Toughest question of the day. Good luck. Someone who has inspired a lot of people over the years. Big Bird. Oh. On Sesame Street. Big Bird first appeared on November 10th, 1969. How tall is Big Bird? Oh. Why do I is feel like Big I've been Bird? asked this before? <laughs> like, I, I... Is he nine feet tall? Nine feet. Have you asked feet. this before? I have not asked okay. this. Unless Sam, Sam, Sam might have asked it before. Is, there, is that right? Karina's oh. is close. Nine feet's really close. Hmm. Ten. Ten's, yeah, it's a little shorter. He's uh. precisely eight feet, two inches. Oh, okay, okay. Eight feet, two okay. inches. It's a big but bird. I was like trying to imagine bird. the guest appearances where they're standing next to him. <laughs> okay, it's about... He's, he's always got a foot or two on. Oh, man, I love it. I love wow, it. Thanks for being a good sport and yes. going along with trivia. We always have a good time with it. Mm -hmm. I'm sweating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jenna, so, did we have any final questions? Yes, yeah, so we have a final question. It's not a quiz. But, you know, we want to inspire people with this podcast, and, and sometimes it's hard to know what to do. So what can I do? What can the average person do to make a difference or be a better steward of the earth? One thing I would say, a friend of mine named Melody, who I work, Melody, who I work with in activism, said the future is local. Um, and when it comes to environmental issues that impact people and impact wildlife, um, being engaged, being civically engaged, um, participating in your local elections, being aware of the environmental decisions that are being made about where you live that affect people and, of course, wildlife and our natural resources, vote in those elections, right? Um, vote in the hyper-local ones. Um, when they're asking questions on ballots, be informed so that you can make an informed uh, decision about how you vote because the accumulation of our participation is really what guides some of the decisions that are made about how healthy our water is, like how our local species are, are conserved, um, and everything up to like what kind of resources our kids have access to in their education in school, right? So it's all connected, um, but the common ground is that these decisions are made by voters um, in many cases, and so I encourage you to be a, an active participant in the voting process and the democracy of your local area. That's that's a really good one and something that I definitely don't think about often when you, you're thinking of conservation or, you know, the earth in general is, is voting, and where can somebody look up that information or find it? Is it something you mm -hmm. need to be watching the news, or is it something you should look up? Is there a good website? or So it's <clears throat> different depending on where you live. Usually states will have resources that, say, list the municipal and local elections that are happening where you are, and so you can be aware of that. But when it comes to, say, the candidates who are running and their platforms, you kind of have to look them up individually mm -hmm. um, and see what their platforms okay. are, what they stand for. And that takes some work, that takes time, but it's really worth it because that decisions you, you make at the ballot box tallies up with everybody else's and determines who's leading those efforts and what decisions are being made. So find who's running, look at their websites. Most candidates will have a website that lists the platforms they're running on, what they believe about those platforms, what they intend to do with their position, and if they get it. Um, and that will make a huge difference. Um, and I would also encourage people to plug into local organizations that are organized around environmental issues. And so if there's a particular environmental issue that you care about, so say water, um, or if it's wildlife related, whatever it might be, oftentimes there are organizations whose entire mission is to educate the public about 
how do they be informed in, in advocating for wellness and for the health of the ecosystem? And so I would encourage you to look up local organizations because they're a wealth of knowledge so that you can know, okay, what are the issues on the table right now? What are our, you know, local legislators deciding, you know, thinking about, you know, arguing about, whatever it might <laughs> right. be, right? So that you can kind of contribute your voice in a way that is effective and most helpful um, to create an ecosystem that's healthy for everybody. Yeah, that's such a good point, too. Yeah. Sometimes you think about too big, like you're thinking, how can I help endangered elephants in mm -hmm. Africa? And you just need to think local. Mm -hmm. Like It can make such a big difference and is just as important, if not more, yeah. locally than somewhere across the world. Can, so. I, can I give an, uh, uh, a kind of wrap-up sort of metaphor that one of my friends shared with me? Absolutely. One of my friends is a, his name is Billy Allman, and he's a... An astrobiofuturist is how he describes himself. Wow. But he's, he works in biomimicry. Wait, he's a what? Astrobiofuturist. <gasps> so he's really good at kind of looking at the natural world and applying, you know, in biomimicry, it's is focused a lot on technology, right? What are some shapes or processes or structures in nature that can help our technology be most efficient? And we see that, you know, planes, medicine, everything, right? But there's also stuff, stuff, something to learn about the social dynamics that we see happening in nature. And one of them is murmurations. And so if you have ever seen like a flock of starlings in Cincinnati or anywhere, and sometimes they form these big groups where they fly together kind of in coordination and it looks very beautiful. It's mm -hmm. like, wow, look at this blob of birds and it's like acrobatic. But what they're doing is actually avoiding a predator. So whenever you see these big flocks and this beautiful kind of coordinated movement, if you look closely, you might see a little bird of prey um, on the outside chasing them. And so that behavior is to avoid a threat. And the way that a murmuration is able to work, that, and Billy was, was highlighting this, is that each bird is paying closest attention to the birds immediately around it, most immediately around them. And that attention essentially ripples throughout the group so they can make decisions very quickly about direction, about pace, that allows them to be very efficient in the way they're avoiding this threat. And the same thing is true of people and communities. If you're paying close attention to the people, the places, the spaces immediately around you and everyone's doing that, that creates large-scale capacity to move very efficiently in how we respond and equitably in how we respond to threats. And so even if you're doing global conservation, which is excellent and great, do that, but also know who's where you are, right? Know the people who are living in the neighborhood, in the city where you are. What are the efforts and the, um, the challenges that they're facing and how can you support the work they're doing. Um, and that kind of local attention has really powerful and rippling effects um, as we're facing a lot of complex, intersecting, um, and imminent changes and challenges in our natural world um, and in our inter interactions with other people. So I just wanted to share that because yeah, I, love awesome. that. <laughs> I love that. I love that fantastic metaphor. way yeah. of like helping us see that and think yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's it. Excellent metaphor. Cause you always see like, like you said, those flocks of bird or giant schools of fish avoiding mm -hmm, a predator. Mm -hmm. And you're like, how, how the heck could that be applicable to humans? But you're right. Like, it's amazing. Yes. Yeah. Well, we've been so lucky to have you. Thank you Thank for you. joining our podcast. Yes. I feel like we are official now. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is the greatest honor. I have, like, wanted to meet the incredible people of Cincinnati Zoo. I so admire all the work that you all do. Obviously, love Fiona. But, you know, Who everybody knows? loves Fiona. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for having. It is having me. It's an honor. You all are great. So much yes. fun. I want to, like... I'm like I want to be on the I want to be on the Cincinnati team. <laughs> yeah, we can come back. <laughs> come back anytime. Time. Yes, thank yes. you, Karina right. Newsom, conservation scientist, ornithologist, community activist. Thank you so much for joining Good us. Good luck with your yes. new future job thank and you. making so many differences. So thank you so thank much. You. Thanks for all of your hard work. Thank yes. you. And thanks to all our listeners. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Until next time. Until next time.